a happy song, a friendly smile, a moment to yourself. It's the little things that make your day, like a McCafe iced coffee, just $1.49 for a medium all day. And it's the little things that make it so delicious. We start with fresh brewed coffee made from 100% Arabica beans. Swirl in rich cream and add your choice of caramel, French vanilla, or hazelnut. Whatever makes you happy, we're happy to make it. McCafe iced coffee, $1.49 for a medium all day. McDonald's. Price participation may vary. Limited time. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Sam Vecini, who's an NBA draft expert, and while that timing may seem a little weird to have a draft expert on right now, it actually makes a lot of sense because while the NBA has been largely off for the last little while, other things have been very active. So you could think about the Nike Skills Academy, Adidas Nations, of course, NBA Summer League. And so Sam and I talk, we start about the 2017 class, so the players that will could be drafted this year. Then we also talk about 2018, so the year later, and 2016, the players who were just drafted, since Sam knows them so well. Of course, if the two people listened to the two of us before, we go on a lot of tangents. I think it's really fun to talk about team building and things of that nature. And the podcast runs about an hour 45, so it's on the longer side. And it is brought to you by Blue Apron. So you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm. Try out that amazing service. Those of you who listen to the podcast have heard me talk about it before. You get three meals for free plus free shipping. So that's blueapron.com slash realgm. And we'll go on to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, Danny, I'm always uh, always happy to join you on lovely Real GM Radio. It's a, it's a great service that Real GM provides for me with uh, all of their great NBA draft pick transaction stuff, all of their player pages for international players is very important to me. So I'm always happy to help out when I can. Yeah, their resources in terms of international players in particular is something that I think is probably underutilized. I don't even think I, I fully touch everything that it does, but having their databases and everything else, it's, it, it really is great. One of the striking aspects for me of the 2017 class, which we've seen more of this summer, is that it actually has quality point guards. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say that this class is more loaded at point guard than any that I can remember in recent memory. I would say that five of my top ten prospects at the very least are point guards. Uh, you look at the top, I would say that there's probably, you know, three that really stand out in uh, Markel Fultz, who some have at number one right now on their big board. Uh, you look at a guy like a Dennis Smith who came out and just dominated at Adidas Nations, which both of us were at. And then you look at Frank Tilakina from France, who's a really interesting big six foot five point guard who is athletic and can do a lot of different stuff in terms of the way he attacks and the way that he defends. So let's start with those three guys. Do you have any concerns with any of the three about their ability to run an offense? Or Because, I mean, that can always be a challenge with a guy who's nominally a point guard. But I think all of them at least have that in. All of them, from what I've seen, have at least capability also to be a secondary ball handler. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that more than anything, the concern with the top two, at least, in Fultz and Tilakina, uh, you know, Markel Fultz can shoot a little bit, but I would say the jump shot, you know, it's not like 40% jump shot from three or anything, and I think he'll need to develop that a little bit further. Tilakina's jump shot, uh, it's it's not great right now. I have uh, access to international synergy, and he is something like among all international leagues, like in the bottom 10 percentile of jump shots, wow. uh, both off the dribble and uh, off the catch. 
So he really needs to improve that part of his game. If you look at the shot, it, it looks projectable, and it looks like it's something that is going to be able to be improved, but it, it's something that needs to happen. Like we've seen so many players over the course of uh, however many years that we've been doing draft work, you know, just never quite get there with their jump shot, despite having mechanics that can make it transferable and translatable to the NBA. So I think that if we could see some growth with uh, Tilakina's jump shot, that would be a really great thing for him. And that's something that, after a couple guys really did develop it, and Jason Kidd might be the most prominent example just because he was bad through sure. his early NBA career and then just became a, a solid catch-and-shoot guy, is that some people go, oh, well, that can just be corrected. And I, I think that the best way to approach that sort of an issue is to say, okay, what is his value if the shot doesn't come around, and then how does that change the way that we think about them as a player? Yeah, with Tilakina specifically, I would say that he probably does need a jump shot to reach his full effectiveness. He does do a lot of really good stuff in transition. He's a good passer. Like I said, good defender, can really get into the lane basically whenever he wants. But as we've seen with so many guys, and I guess that he might be a little bit different just being six foot five and, you know, having long arms and being able to affect the game in so many different ways. But uh, with the way the NBA is going, you really do need to at least have the threat of a jump shot with how often these guys handle the ball. So if you can't shoot, I think it's very difficult to have the ball in your hands consistently because teams can, the way that teams defend now, they can just, you know, kind of shut down way too many other options uh, without defending you from 25 feet or even 20 feet. So uh, he has still some work to do, but the upside is tremendous just because, of, like I said, athleticism, size, length, uh, everything that everything else that you're looking for, basically, he kind of has. And we'll get a, a more full test of the idea of how important it is for a guy who's a non-shooter to have the ball in his hands with the Bucks. Because Giannis, while, of course, not a point guard in terms of size, he is a player mm -hmm. who benefits so substantially from having the ball in his hands because when somebody is dribbling, you have to defend them. You know, you have to be active on it and all that sort of thing. And he could be an example of a guy who benefits more from being primary than, than all of the other things. And so, but what that means, if you're if you are that player, is that, a, you're going to be more ball dominant, and you have to be good with the ball in You have to be able to create not only for yourself, but in some ways more importantly for others if we're talking about the NBA, because you need to have that person be dynamic. And so you get into those issues with various players around the league. I mean, Dion Waiters is probably a good example of this. There are a million others of a guy who is better with the ball in his hands, but isn't good enough with the ball in his hands. Right, and I think that that kind of hits the nail on the head on what the downside is with a lot of these guys. Like, Dion Waiters is a good player, I think, uh, whenever he stays within himself, you know, spots up and hits shots, because he's actually a pretty good catch-and-shooter, if you look at the numbers. Uh, he's an active defender on the ball, but when he's kind of trying to do too much, whenever you use him as a primary ball handler, there's just way too many problems there to where you can't really run an effective offense. And Hilakina, I think, again, it's a little bit different, because he's kind of one of those guys who's, you never have to worry about him being out of control. Like, you know, with waiters, you, there's just so much potential for disaster on every offensive possession just because you never know what decision he's going to make. Tilakina, it's all very composed, I would say, is the best way to put it. Uh, he knows exactly what he wants to do with the ball. It, it's kind of like Emmanuel Moutier in terms of the way that, you know, whenever you watched him in high school, you could see a player that knew exactly how to operate in the pick and roll, was patient, knew exactly how to get guys on his back, and then kind of be able to see the floor whenever you're in the pick and roll. So it's a, 
I'm not super worried on Tilakina necessarily in a way that I would be with other non-shooting point guards. He's just kind of that athletic and that almost like powerful with the ball in a way and that composed with the ball in a way that even if he doesn't learn to shoot or like doesn't become a uh, consistent jump shooter, I think he can be okay. But uh, having said that, you know, there is still some room for growth there in his jump shot and I would expect it to come along. Uh, I would expect his numbers to be better this year at the very least than they were last year with Strasburg. Plus, Tilakina, which parallels part of the reason I, I love Dante Exum as a prospect, as a value proposition, is that with his size, there is a possibility sure. he would have to gain a little bit of weight, but he could defend some twos. And so what that does in terms of backcourt mates, because I like to think about the backcourt as a combination. And so going back to Moutier, this is an interesting parallel because Moutier got Jamal Murray, who I think is a really nice fit. And if Tilakina can dance that a little bit, then you can choose a partner with him a little bit differently than somebody who's a straight one. And you can go after different skill sets. You can be a little bit more versatile with mm-hmm. it. And the other example for me with that, I don't know if he really fits it from a size perspective, is Dennis Smith. And Smith, part of what has intrigued me with him is I see a lot of Eric Bledsoe in him. I don't know why that is with me. Maybe it's the intensity or something like that. And I think it's the explosiveness probably. Yeah, explosiveness too. And part of what made Bledsoe really awesome early in his career when he was playing with Chris Paul is that he was good on the ball and he was good off the ball despite not having the greatest jumper in the world. And that type of versatility in terms of scheme, in terms of what your role is, can be really valuable if you are not this awesome guard from the bounce because most guys aren't. And so then you can produce value for your team regardless of whether you need to start or all that kind of stuff, and you can do a lot more around them. Right. So what I think that you're looking for and what, you know, every team building executive and every team building general manager is looking for in, you know, a draft pick or a free agent is a high level of utility, right? Like you want guys who can bring you a wide, varied skill set so you don't have to go out and overpay uh, on the markets for you know, specific skills like, you know, shooting and floor spacing where, you know, if you have a Ricky Rubio, you limit yourself in terms of what you can surround him with. Or if you have uh, Andrew Wiggins, I'm kind of thinking about the Timberwolves here. You kind of need a two guard or a stretch four who can really shoot the ball. So, you know, with Dennis Smith, what I really like at least is that offensively, there's very little that I don't think like he can do. I think he's a good shooter off the dribble. I think he's uh, going to be a good enough catch and shoot guy. He's just a tremendous athlete. I mean, even with the torn ACL, I can't see there being a better athlete in this draft in terms of explosiveness, first step and leaping ability. He's just that talented in terms of that skill. So you look at an explosive guard, you can kind of do everything offensively. Plus he's tremendous in the pick and roll. I talked to him kind of about who he models his game after. He kind of picked two guys. He said, Chris Paul, which makes sense because they're both, you know, a little bit more on the small slight side, you know, Dennis Smith's a little bit bigger at six, two, but he doesn't have the longest wingspan. I mean, he only has a six foot three wingspan. So it's not like he's necessarily going to play up in terms of size. Uh, and then he also said Chauncey Billups, which I thought was interesting because whenever you think of Chauncey Billups, you don't really think of an explosive athlete who, you know, is going to attack the rim with impunity and do all this. You think of a heady player who was just so tremendously skilled and had such incredible footwork in the pick and roll and everything that, you know, he got by with guile more than this explosiveness. So I always find it interesting when guys kind of go against type in terms of what 
tape they're watching and incorporating into their games. And, you know, Dennis Smith said all the right things there. And defensively, like I said, I don't think I see him necessarily guarding anyone other than ones just because of the smallish wingspan and, uh, you know, only being six foot two. But he's going to be a guy that I think is going to get into passing lanes. He's aggressive defensively in a way that you like to see. I don't know if he's necessarily going to bring the versatility that you're looking for, but there's a lot to like at the very least. And these guys come into the league at a fascinating time because there is this lingering question that will become a bigger question, a question that hopefully will be answered in the next couple of years of whether point guards can start aging better than they have in the past. And particularly small point guards, I wrote the piece about Chris Paul about it you know, six months, a year ago, about how I'm worried about how he's going to age. And Mike Conley, of course, the same thing yeah. applies just because small point guards don't. And so what that, why that matters is because either that will be opening up some spots or that will change the way that teams should think about a point guard as an asset. Because if you have a smaller guy and basically have to treat it that at 30, they're done, that is a very different thing than if they can start to reach into 33, 34. Definitely in terms, I think that hits more on the free agency market though. Sure. You know, like whenever you draft someone at, you know, 20 years old, 19 years old, if you get a decade out of them at an elite level, I think that you kind of just take that, right? Like, sure. you're just like, oh yeah, we're, we're good with that. Um, but you're right, though, in terms of how these players age, in terms of, you know, if they're 27 on the market, do you want to give them a four- or five-year deal? I don't really feel all that comfortable with that right now, do you? No, not at all, especially if they're on the smaller side. You know, if it was somebody who was a little bit taller, then they could work themselves into it. But, yeah, yeah, like Con- Conley's deal is going to be scary in a couple of years. And I hope the best. I-, I like Mike Conley quite a bit. I've dealt with him personally. But the track record, I mean, really, the guys who are the exceptions to that, really it's Stockton and then a few other players who weren't true point guards in that sense. But Stockton's the anomaly. And I know that's what Chris Paul is gunning for, is to be the next John Stockton that way and be able to somehow defeat father time for 10 years but the law of large numbers does come into play here right there's that i mean there's also the idea of like we were kind of saying with you know multi-dimensionality where bigger point guards if you have to you can move them to the two if they can you know shoot the ball and maybe defend smaller two guards there's just a little bit more a, a little bit more room for them to age gracefully well you know and, what and i mean a great example of that is actually probably manu so, like, Manu wasn't a point guard in terms of that, but he was a primary ball handler, did it a lot on the second right. unit, and I think he aged better. I think he's aging better than Tony Parker will, partially because of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a really interesting one to bring up, because you look at Manu and you look how his role has changed with the Spurs. It's kind of changed as they have uh, kind of built around him. Like, you go out and you get a Patty Mills who can handle a little bit, of secondary ball handling duties. You go out and you get a Kyle Anderson, who this year I think might be able to step into a little bit more of secondary ball handling. There's just a lot of guys on that roster, and particularly who they drafted in DeJounte Murray, who I don't think he really plays an impact this year, meaning he won't necessarily have too, too much of a say on where Manu is going necessarily. But it's still fascinating to me to kind of look at how all these six foot four guys age as compared to, you know, the six foot one guys. Like even a, even a Rajon Rondo, he's a, like, you don't think of him as being on the smaller side because he has such long arms and affects the game defensively in the way that a guy that's like six foot four does. But, you know, Rondo's six foot one, his body did kind of break down. Like it seems like after that initial knee injury, he could just never kind of get back to that level that, he initially reached early in, early on in his career with the Celtics. 
That's a good point. Have I floated to you in the times we've talked my idea with one of the Spurs lineups that they should use this year? Maybe, but what is so, it? So Danny Green is best defending primary ball handlers. Like he's good on ball. He's better. He can stay more engaged. So the idea is that right. if Parker's slipping, then the the gap in creation between Parker and Manu is thinning out. So play Green and Manu together with Kawhi Lamarcus and then kind of however you want to handle that fifth position. So the idea is without a traditional guy with point guard size, because Danny Green occupies it defensively and then Manu occupies it offensively. And I think that could work better than when they're trying to do, you know, Tony and Tony and Danny and then Manu and Patty Mills. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure they'll try and run that out. At some point, uh, I'm going to be fascinated with just how their whole entire scheme runs this year because I think they're going to really – I think this is the year where they finally try and integrate some of the younger guys like a Jonathan Simmons they and Kyle to. Anderson. and uh, Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel. Well, especially so, now I'm that they, be... have, they have roster spots for like Davis Bertrands and Livio Jean-Charles, and like they really haven't had that kind of a situation with players that I don't expect to play too much and just kind of have them buried in the same way as they've done with, let's say, Kyle Anderson, who had a little bit more promise and things like that. They Those guys are stepping in now without having established it on the Spurs, which is a rarity. Have you looked at the Jean-Charles contract yet? Like, I, I don't know. Did he get the full 120? I don't think he did. I think he got around 100%, but I haven't I haven't run the numbers for sure, but I think that's what it's around. But anyway, it, for him, it's more <laughs> just getting two years of guaranteed money. Yeah, like he's – I don't think he's an NBA player, uh, to be honest, based on what we've seen uh, from him is he has grown in France. But, you know, maybe he comes over for a couple years, gets the guaranteed money, and the Spurs work some magic on him, and it, it works out. But, yeah, that, that's a contract where I look at it, and I'm just like, eh, that's – kind of a wasted roster spot that you have to have because you took him in the first round but yeah i don't see him playing a whole lot you look at a guy like Dwayne deadman that's a guy that's got to play a lot this year i think you look at a guy like a you know jonathan simmons kyle anderson those guys are gonna have to play this year i think and it's gonna be a fascinating uh different spurs team than what we're used to and it'll be exciting to actually see them with this different stage in the process. Like, they've been able to work along those young guys really slowly. Even somebody like Patty Mills, like, they, they got a lot out of him that he hadn't that, that hadn't been done in previous stops, but they were able to do it in basically no-pressure situations. And this Spurs team, as long as, I mean, of course, Duncan retired, but as long as the other guys are still there, it's a pressure situation. They're going for a championship, you know, whether they're the favorites for it or not. And so to throw them into the fire also without as much overall skill especially on the second unit to kind of compensate will be a a real test for pop that we haven't seen in a long time yeah for sure and then they only have 14 guarantees right now as well so like you're looking at one of those like Pato Garino, Archidiacono, or Bryn Forbes like types making this roster unless they sign someone late here. Or, or uh, they, could, they and, could be where they hold on to one of those guys for now and then get a buyout player later on. That's a possibility. Too. Right, right. I think that that's probably what the uh, greatest ideal is at this stage because those guys are eventually, I would imagine that whoever sticks on that roster initially will get cut eventually and just go to the D League. Uh, they all got pretty actually sizable guarantees. I think that the Spurs are one of the teams that really works the undrafted free agency market well. They all got uh, six-figure guarantees, actually, which, you know, I don't think I had any of those guys in my top 100 
on my draft board, they were all there. But like, uh, actually, Greeno wasn't there, but they were all there. But like, you know, you wouldn't expect those guys a few years ago to maybe get that much money guaranteed. But the Spurs, they really understand that market and understand how valuable I think shelling out an extra $75,000 over the life of, you know, uh, three players is in maybe picking up a valuable overlooked piece that you can develop in the dealing. Isn't Van Vliet while he's on the Raptors? That's another example, I think, of how that can work. Absolutely. And honestly, Van Vliet isn't getting a lot of money. Van Vliet got 50 grand guaranteed, which is not, I, I could almost guarantee you he could have gotten more elsewhere, but he saw an opportunity with Toronto that, uh, I didn't see initially, but maybe he had some information. His agencies had some information on uh, how DeLon Wright's situation was going to work in terms of the injury and kind of saw an opportunity to make that team out of camp. And I would be surprised if he didn't make that team out of camp now. Plus, he's, yeah, somebody who, if if he ends up going into the D-League, could be a, a really nice player to have because one of the challenges at that level, I don't admittedly don't watch a ton of the D-League, I might watch a little bit more this year, is having that steady hand at point guard who can create for people just, it, it makes the whole ecosystem more tenable. And having Van Vliet, if yeah. that's your worst case scenario, it's a pretty good one. It really does. I mean, just having a more than that, having a point guard that distributes as opposed to looking for looking for his own bucket all the time. You know, the D League at times, and you know, I, I don't mean this as a indictment on the entire league, but you know, some situations it ends up being that guys on the perimeter are just kind of gun for their own shot, trying to get a look from a team, and. Uh, you know, trying to impress like a random scout in the crowd and hope that uh, that gets them called up to the NBA. Having a guy like, you know, Fred Van Vliet, though, is probably a little bit more beneficial for the entire team and for the entire uh, organization's development. So, yeah, I'm definitely interested in watching how Van Vliet goes, but I'm admittedly like just a massive Fred Van Vliet homer. So well, it I seems can't like really almost every even... college writer is, you know, like that's just one of those lines of division is that if you, if you followed college basketball closely, you love Fred Van Vliet. It's not even like if you followed it closely because, you know, for the first couple of years, I was kind of like, he's fine. He, he's just like, okay, but I hadn't met him at that point. It, it's one of those things where once you meet him, you get it. Like is if it, you talk you to him. supposedly for... the same way? Ah, Tyler Tyler's super smart. Tyler, uh, I don't know that he necessarily had, like, the best rapport with media. He can get a little bit uh, acerbic, uh, might be the best way to put it. He can get a little sarcastic and kind of like, you know, why am why do I have to do this times? But he's a super, super sharp guy. Like, if, if you get him talking about basketball, from what I've been told, I've only talked to him once. Uh, but if you get him talking about basketball, from what I've been told, it's awesome. So, uh, you know, it, he's not the same as Van Vliet, though. Van Vliet is, you know, smart, intense, but willing to give you as much time as uh, you're willing to give him. He understands the process of media, understands everything. And, you know, we're, we're kind of conflating two different things here, right, in terms of, like, likability within the media and how intelligent you are both on and off the basketball floor. Van Vliet kind of combines all of that into a single package in a way that is just a really, he's a really special player and a special person to be around. Isn't, I, I haven't covered him yet in person, sadly, but I've heard Towns is like that too. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten a chance to cover Carl Towns in person either, which, you know, well, I guess I did last year at the Final Four very briefly, but, you know, I haven't really gotten a chance to, you know, get time with him at all. 
really even beyond like a scrum of, you know, 30 people, which isn't necessarily the best way to even come close to understanding person. Okay. So, so the, uh, the other high-end guys in terms of this, the 2017 class are all forwards of different shapes. And well, we should, we should probably, before we even get to forwards, we haven't even talked about the guy that is number one on a lot of boards right now. Markel? Yeah, we kind of skipped over. Yeah, Markel we did kind of skip over Markel Fultz. Ken Pelt would be so mad at us. Yeah, like he—he's a stud. But yeah, absolutely. Like, everything that people say about Markel Fultz is right. Uh, his track to get to where he is now is one of the more interesting ones that you will hear about. You know, he was a guy that was on JV up until his junior year of high school basketball. And then it all just kind of clicked and he became just this unstoppable force of athleticism and creativity that I can't really remember seeing. Uh, like even like D'Angelo Russell was really skilled and really athletic and really creative, but Markell's is a little bit different. Like Markell is one of those guys who like practices weird stuff, right? Like he, he like, is that guy before the game that'll throw up like a floating one-handed half-court shot because he thinks it, you know, might eventually help him out in a game. I, and I, I cover he, somebody like that. Oh, yeah, kind of. That's guess what, the, Steph, that's what the, Steph does. Yeah, uh, that, that's kind of an interesting comparison. But um, the thing with Markell is, like, he does it in the half-court, too. Like, you watch the way he looks at the floor and just kind of makes these whip passes like right behind someone's ear. And the way that he attacks the rim is uh, just with ease because he's so athletic and he is just a monster at the guard. I don't know if he's a one or a two, to be honest. I think that he might just be more of like a James Hardeny primary ball handler because he's six foot five, like a six, nine wingspan. Like he, he can play the one or the two with ease. I'm going to be fascinated to see how his year at Washington goes because I would imagine that Romar is just going to let him go like he did with, you know, DeJounte Murray and Markel Fultz this year and like he does with basically every other elite prospect. He's just so fascinating to watch. There is not going to be – I mean, there's maybe a guy at UCLA that might be as fun as him, but in terms of just, like, enjoyability while watching a player, Markel Fultz is the tops and he has the talent to back it up. Yeah, Fultz is a player who I hadn't heard that much about when we went to Hoop Summit because his rise had basically come during that year. And so when when you're in the NBA land as much as I am, you don't hear as much about the guys uh-huh. in high school who are developing. And as soon as we got there, I'm like, wow, this guy's good. Like he, he popped to me before I heard any buzz. And that's always yeah. a really good sign. Like when you see somebody and you then, and then you start to hear the people saying, oh, he got so much better this year. He's doing all this stuff. You're like, okay, I can see all of that. And I was really impressed with him. And you're right that he could bounce between the positions defensively. And we talked a little bit with Dennis Smith about the idea of versatility. And Fultz could end up being a, another level of that just in terms of being able to defend both positions and mm-hmm. being the problem though is that he might end up being too high in the draft to have a good backcourt mate early on you know like that that him rising potentially to number one you know it, it would sure. have been maybe good for him to be to fall to that like four to five range just to maybe get the right team but when you're as talented as he is that opportunity doesn't happen and and yeah it's hard with the parallels because it's different than somebody like russell westbrook who his bigger growth was just physical growth that he got taller right you know like russ was an intriguing guy and an athlete but just he i think he grew a couple inches and that really turned him into the type of player he became fultz his profile rose like Westbrook's did, but it was for a very different reason. 
Yeah, actually, that's kind of an interesting comparison. Like, you know, Fultz is kind of the other side of the coin with Westbrook, right? Like Westbrook just physically became this athletic freak that no one can stop, right? Fultz isn't necessarily that. He's a really good athlete. But, you know, he gets by more on just this ridiculous skill level and just like kind of insanely different way that he thinks the game. So I'm going to be fascinated to see him. He's the number three player on my board going into the year behind. We're going to talk about a couple guys at forward who I have him uh, and on the wing that I have him behind. But he's my number one point guard going into the year, followed by Tilakina and Dennis Smith. So, yeah, those guys are all going to be interesting at the very least. Since we're on guards and because you already just alluded to him, Lonzo Ball is going to be really exciting. So, yeah, that's... I don't have a read on the way he's going to go yet. I don't either, you... especially be going to Alford. I mean, it's going to be weird. But well, I his think, tal- his I think Steve will play. I think Steve will play up tempo when he's on the floor. He like has- I think it'll be fine. The question I have is, if you read anything about their Australia trip or you know talk to anyone uh, around there, you know he came off the bench and was pretty bad. Like he he shot like twenty five percent in a few games in Australia against professional caliber talent like they were playing nbl teams but you hear about it and he was very clearly the fourth best guard of their four guards aaron holiday was the best from what i was told uh isaac hamilton played well and uh you know bryce alford stepped into more of an off-ball role which is what they're really hoping from him this year and then tj leaf i heard was the most impressive freshman so you know you kind of look at the way that Lonzo Ball has the biggest adjustment of any player in college basketball this year. The way that Chino Hills plays basketball on the high school level is unlike any other type of basketball in the world. It's kind of one of those things you kind of have to see either on tape or, you know, in person to really appreciate, to at least to appreciate the level of transition that Lonzo has to make in terms of going back to playing like kind of under control basketball that isn't just constant pushing, 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 pushing. Do you, do you and, want to give a little bit of a walkthrough to people who might not be as in tune with the Chino Valley, uh, Chino Hills thing, just to kind of, because it, it is so different. Yeah, Chino Hills is seven seconds or less on crack. Like It's like, the, it's like and, the Rio Grande Vipers, except more intense. Yes, that's exactly right. They shoot threes and they shoot layups. And those layups typically only come in transition. Like they are not afraid if they get the ball from, you know, they bring the ball up the floor and you give them an open shot from 30 feet, Lonzo will take it. And that's not a problem at all. They've had their, you know, there's three ball brothers, obviously. There's Lonzo, LiAngelo, and LaMelo. LaMelo's the youngest. He's been playing varsity since he was like 12 and just chucking up shots from deep, like since he was 12. And he's already committed to UCLA as a freshman uh, in high school. Like it's just a really, it's a really different type of basketball in a way that, like I said, it's unlike any other kind of basketball that's being played in the world, I feel like. You know, I think that Danny Chow, might have written a thing on them on the ringer. Does that sound right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, and he wrote like how it's like the future of basketball. Was that that was kind of it, right? Like I, I think like so. Yeah, uh, as... I I disagree with him in that sense, but I do think that yeah. it's, it's a fascinating way to connect young people with the sport because it's different, but it's engaging somewhat. But I mean, I I enjoy defense more than more than some of their stuff does and promotes, but it is certainly a different approach. The parallel for me would be like that high school coach, I think it's in Texas, who never punts. 
where it's right. just you do yeah. something and it's certainly within the rules. It could be something that comes, but it is taking a taking an approach and a novel philosophy to its absolute furthest point. Right. So it's like from Varsity Blues running the oop to you every single play down the field, then never punting on top of that, never kicking field goals on top of that, and onside kicking every time is basically the Chino Hills basketball equivalent of football. It is insane and it's beautiful. And it's unlike anything else in the world, which means Lonzo is going to have an adjustment to make uh, getting back into the way basketball is played everywhere else. And that's fine. He's still a preternaturally gifted passer. What he can do and the way he sees the floor, again, it's kind of like Markel Fultz, where it's unlike anyone else really in the world. He just sees different angles that are there that nobody else sees. And that's going to translate immediately. He's probably the best passer to enter college basketball at the very least since Kendall Marshall, and he might be better than Kendall Marshall in terms of his floor vision. Like, he's that good of a passer. The better, the bigger question is, he's not an elite athlete. He's a good athlete. Like, he's a way better athlete than Kendall Marshall, but he's not an elite athlete, so is he going to be able to get into the lane as constantly as he needs to against elite athleticism? And can you count on him to shoot? Because if you look at his jump shot, I don't want to say it's ugly because – he gets really good rotation on the ball. It goes in more than you would expect, realistically. But he shoots it way across his body. The release point is, like, below his head, maybe, like, below his chin, maybe, I would say. Like, I don't know if it's below his chin, but it's, like, maybe right at his chin. So it's, like, a totally different thing that I can see that shot getting contested relatively easily in the NCAA, and let alone in the NBA. So I don't know if there's going to have to be mechanical adjustments there or if it just kind of works and, you know, everything is fine. Who knows? He could go so many different ways. And I'm kind of like working on something on UCLA right now. And what I'm writing is his ceiling is basically UCLA's ceiling, right? Like if he is an all-American talent, like he, you know, has the mind and the passing ability and he has enough athleticism to be, uh, you know, their ceiling is Final Four at least. But if he's just like a solid player in his first year and still kind of adjusting to college basketball and has to stay a second year despite averaging something, you know, like you know, 13 points, six assists a game or something, that lowers UCLA's ceiling quite a bit. So uh, I'm going to be fascinated to watch the Bruins this year. What's hard about Ball in that sense of projecting him as an NBA player is that unless he fixes his shot, you want him to be defended by ones. And if you want him defended by ones, then that changes some things about how, how your team is constructed, assuming he is good enough to do that. But right. what makes him so interesting in terms of the NBA is also that, while he could be much more than this, him as the Jamal Crawford-esque second unit guy who just is way better than most most teams' second unit guys right. would be such an amazing worst-case scenario. Like it's it's something yeah. that's very very different, and part of the reason why I am so high on taking point guards higher in the draft because we've seen it throughout the league in the last couple of years is that teams without even 15 minutes, let's say like the Detroit Pistons this past year of quality point guard play, can get completely sabotaged. So yeah, well it is not you know necessarily the best use of resources if there are other good players around. This, it was the exact same logic with Cameron Payne. You know, like if you can get 15 to 20 or ideally, you know, a starter from that, 
it is something that at, at on a rookie scale contract is so much more valuable than when you when you look at the guys like DJ Augustine and Ish Smith and those type of players who don't have any starter upside. They're talented guys, you know, like they, they have a spot in the league, but those players are getting seven, eight million dollars a year and they ha- don't mm-hmm. have any of the upside of a guy like Lonzo. And so to get somebody like that and have them for four years on this bargain basement contract, you know, for me, that pushes up their value, even if there is so much more uncertainty with it. Yeah, no, everything you said, uh, I fully agree with. I wasn't quite as high on campaign in general compared to everyone else. I had them in the 20s on my big board. But like, I agree with you in theory that point guards should be taken higher in the NBA draft. Just with the way the draft is going, the problem is there's haven't been good point guards over sure, the last. Yeah, that, that's know. why this class is so amazing, is because there are players yeah. who are worth it, and you, you know you can see that, and that's part of the reason why the Deontay Murray possibility lingers with the Spurs because if they can figure it out and got that guy in the late twenties, it'll be huge for them. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and, and you know this year. Even like a Jamal Murray. Jamal Murray thinks of himself as a point guard. You might be able to get by with him as like a second unit point guard. Obviously, you hope that he is like this superstar two guard who you can rely on uh, in the starting lineup. But like if you want to run him with your second unit, you might be able to get away with him at point guard some. And that pushes up his value a little bit, I think. The three-headed monster in Denver of Moutier, Gary Harris, and Jamal Murray is going to be so much fun. Just a It lot. really is, and... You know, don't sleep on Malik Beasley either, who they took at 20. Like, he's a really, really talented kid, or maybe 19, whatever pick they had, 19, 20, 21. You know, he's a really talented kid that can handle the ball a little bit and really shoot the ball both on the move and off the catch. So four guys, five guys now. Um, And they'll play play Jameer for sure, at least a little bit, as they shepherd all these other guys in. And with Denver assuming things don't go gangbusters for them, which they certainly could, if they can get one more guy, you know, somebody on the wing or a bit, you know, somebody, somebody that fits in, they could do kind of like what Utah did where you get the core and then you get better, which is really the best, to me, the best way to build it unless you're a major market is to stay bad an extra year and, and get those players and hope it works out. Right. And I mean, this, this draft, we haven't even gotten to the forwards and wings yet. This draft is loaded in the lottery. You know, a guy like a Jonathan Isaac, who has, you know, as much upside as anyone that you will find, like, in the 2016 draft, he, he might go outside of the top 10, outside of the top 15 in this draft. So, no, I mean, this this draft is loaded, and I think that most teams would benefit by being worse for a year. But if you look around the league, that's not really the way, the direction they're going. Yeah, even the teams, kind of most of the teams that are going to be bad this year aren't, weren't even trying. Like, the Lakers wanted to get better, but they'll probably end up right. falling into something really good if they keep their pick. Before we move on, I want to take a quick moment to talk to you about Blue Apron. It is a service that I have really grown to love over the course of the last few months because it is a food delivery service that is a way of doing a lot of different things at one time. It is amazing for building up what I call cooking confidence as somebody who enjoys eating good food and who wasn't that comfortable making it, who hadn't really done that much before. But also, it's excellent quality ingredients. I mean, for me, the real standout has been the vegetables, which is surprising. I'm not the biggest veggie fan, though. I'm not super opposed. And had a summer vegetable salad and roasted potatoes in a meal last week that was absolutely excellent. And also, there's not much food waste. They give you exactly what you need to make the dish, and you do that. And so that means that you're not putting anything in a landfill, you're not wasting any food, and it is great portions, excellent quality, a course of ingredients. And 
new ways of cooking and recipes and everything like that. So if there's something that you really like, you can make it yourself. You can feel confident enough to put a little spin on it. So one of the great things about Blue Apron sponsoring the show is that you can try it out for yourself. You go to blueapron.com slash realgm and you can get three meals for free and that includes free shipping. So you can see if you love it as much as I do. It is something that is a highlight of my week every week. And as I said, you go to blueapron.com slash realgm and give yourself some cooking confidence. Now on to more with Sam Vicini. And but something I wanted to clarify before we move as we move into the forwards is just that while this is deep and it's deep at the top, there is not anybody in that Anthony Davis, Carl Anthony Towns kind of class as a truly like elite prospect. It's just that there are a lot more players in the Ben Simmons, really high ceiling, probably a higher floor than him too group, and that is incredibly unusual. I'm I'm pretty interested in Harry Giles and how he comes back from knee injury. Before he got hurt again, I, I don't know that he was Anthony Davis level, but he was probably, like, the level just right below. So like above, above really Nerlens for you, so, like, kind of between AD and Nerlens? Oh, not even way better than Nerlens. Like, I, I was high on Nerlens, but, like, I was high on him, like, number one in a bad draft, high on him. What Harry Giles can do is just wholly different in terms of what Nerlens Noel can do, because Nerlens Noel... You know, you know, like he didn't even really have an offensive game in high school. Harry Giles has an offensive game, has, you know, like enough range out to 18 feet, 20 feet already to where you can see it becoming a weapon. I mean, in the athleticism, the way he moves his body, the coordination he has, it's, it's real different. <laughs> it's do, you see, different. do you see him as a, five as a four kind of between the two at, at the NBA level more so than the college level. Yeah. And I don't mean to compare him skill wise to Kevin Garnett, but like it's that kind of package of skills to me, right? Where you could play him either at the four or the five, you can play him as your true big man because he's such a good rebounder and he has a seven foot three wingspan. Like you can play him, I think at the five and be totally fine. Or you can play him next to Emil Jefferson and you know, the way that Giles moves his feet. Uh, on the perimeter, you'll be able to, you'll have no problem defending in any capacity. There's no action that you can run against Harry Giles if he's fully healthy, this is, to where you're going to blow by him in a college setting where there's just not enough space within the way that teams operate offense, uh, just right at the three-point line, to cause issues. So I think I might be higher on Harry Giles than most are, but, like, I really, really like what his potential is if he's healthy and he's blown out knees twice now. So that's a very big it. Like this isn't a small concern. <laughs> yeah. And so if we're talking about bigs, even, I mean, of course there are the huge question marks with, with his ACL and everything like that. There is a huge gulf from, you know, from what I know, and you, you feel free to correct that between him and the other, if we're saying true bigs in this class, like Ivan Rabb and Jared Allen, is that, is that something that you would agree with? Yeah, I think so. I think that the second best guy I have on the board is probably Bam Adebayo, who's going to Kentucky. College coaches that you talk to about him love him. Like, they think he has a shot to go number one overall. I'm not quite that high on him. I think that if he can show that he can play in the pick and roll, which Kentucky doesn't run a whole lot of necessarily in comparison to other teams, step out and shoot to like 16, 18 feet, attack the rim with the power that he has in his body and in his game. He could become like a top five pick in this draft, I think. Uh, Lowry Markinen from Finland, who's going to Arizona, is as skilled as it gets in terms of both back-to-the-basket game, 
mid-range game, ability to step away and shoot threes. You know, I don't want to say like Kaminsky-ish in terms of athleticism because I think he's a little bit more fluid than Frank is. But the way that he is so skilled in terms of his touch and in terms of his footwork, I, I think it's going to look Kaminsky-ish in college at the very least. Yeah, so that's... You know, there's, I mean, there's Jonathan Isaac, too, who's like a 3-4. And, you know, yeah. if Jonathan Isaac blew up this year and became like a consensus top three pick, it would not be out of the realm of possibility at all to me. I don't know that I love him necessarily at Florida State because I don't necessarily love the way those guys have developed uh, over the course of the last few years. And you can say what you want about Malik Beasley, but Beasley was just kind of one of those guys who is a special, really super mature kid who is a basically a pro in college already. Uh, I don't expect that. That's not the level I expect every college kid to be at. Uh, whenever you're there and you need some guidership, guidance and leadership uh, from the coaching staff. And I don't necessarily know that, it, that Jonathan Isaac and Dwayne Bacon are going to get that this year. Yeah, he could be a player who, if he comes out after one year, gets un, gets underdrafted and that, we're, and that team is incredibly happy with him. Like that's That seems like a very reasonable outcome. But also the draft process, I think, now has done a better job of sorting out those guys and letting them elevate yeah. during that. But one player, one guard, before we move on to the other headliners that are still left, we both saw De'Aaron Fox at the Hoop Summit, and the guy sure. what screamed out to me was... Patrick Beverly, better defender than offensive player, but still plenty of potential to turn it around. I mean, you never want to write off a guy's off of offensive potential when he hasn't even turned 19 yet. The hair, too. I mean, yes, the, the hair. hair the hair is what pulls off the Beverly comp. Uh, no, I think he's a little bit better with the ball than Beverly is. Like, he's a guy who can actually be a point guard at the next level, I think. Like, you look at the way that he's able to attack with his dribble and I think he's a little bit quicker with his first step than Beverly is. Beverly might even be a little bit longer in terms of his wingspan. He's a little bit more tenacious defensively. Like, it's so hard for me to compare guys defensively to players like Tony Allen and Patrick Beverly, who are just the top, like, 0.1% in terms of intensity. That, like, you can't even really expect – you can't expect anyone to develop that sort of just, you know, rabid – insane attention to detail defensively and then uh, rabid insane, you know, just energy level defensively. So De'Aaron Fox is a really good defensive basketball player. I think he has a little bit more offensive game than Beverly, though. That's good. Uh, yeah, you've seen, of course, seen more of him than I have at this point. So the other 2017 guys, the guys we haven't discussed, the fascinating group of kind of forwardy types and then, you know, a little bit in the two. And for me, the the main guys there are Jason Tatum, who's going to Duke, and Josh Jackson, who's going sure. to Kansas. Yeah, um, a little bit higher than Josh Jackson than Jason Tatum, even though Jackson's a year older. Jackson will be 20 by the time the college basketball season ends, I believe. So he's not necessarily like this young freshman who is still developing uh, in the same way that, you know, a Markel Fultz who just turned 18 is. Josh Jackson is kind of a ready-made guy who could step into an NBA game right now and perform, I think, reasonably well. Uh, you look at the way he can pass the ball particularly, and you look at the way that he is just a freak athletically. Uh, he is peak of, you know, elite of the elite in terms of athleticism on the wing, uh, both power and agility-wise. He's going to be a guy that still needs to develop the jump shot, still needs to develop the ball-handling ability. Just his general overall skill level, he can improve. But when you're talking about athleticism, you don't really improve that, obviously. Like, you can't – you're born with Andrew Wiggins' athleticism. You're born with Dennis Smith's athleticism. And it's the same with Josh Jackson. You're born with a Josh Jackson's athleticism. And 
you know, you hope that the rest of the stuff comes along. And even if it doesn't, I think he is like a solid NBA starter just because of he has really good basketball sense. He cares defensively. He is so athletic that he will be fine. His skill level is, it seems like it's a little bit closer, though, than some of those other real, like, athletic guys. Like, for me, somebody like a Jerry Green or even J.R. Smith, where when they were coming in and they could jump out of the gym. He also, from what I saw, I saw him play, you know, at Summit and saw him play at Prolific Prep. He doesn't use it in the same way that those guys did, at least in in those circumstances. It could be different, you know, in, in some other settings. But you can get that. I mean, if you have that ability within you, it's a lot easier to tap it than if you don't have it at all. And so so that is a strength for him. And his skill level is, you know, he can dribble it a little bit. His shot is still, will take some time. But one of the big differences, though, is that he does care defensively. And that opens things up because he's 6'8", probably ends up defending threes eventually. And that combination of athleticism and caring is enough to do well. Yeah, I fully agree. Like, he's one of those athletes that, while he is reliant on his athleticism to get by, he's not wholly reliant on that athleticism, right? Like he, if you take away like the slashing game for him, because he's a really good straight line driver, I would say is the best way to put it. He can't really put the ball on the deck and, you know, go right and go left and stop and start in the way that you're hoping that he can eventually get to. But what he can do is if you take away that drive, he is really good at finding the open guy in terms of passing the ball. And he's really good at finding cutters around the rim. He's really good at, uh, you know, slashing and you know, hitting the three point shooter on the wing. He's the passing ability is kind of a differentiator in my brain for him because it points to a basketball IQ that is a little bit higher than is normal for those super elite athletes that are a little bit, a uh, little bit different in terms of, uh, or a little bit lower in terms of their skill level. Yeah, that seems fair. And, and you would say that the athleticism is the biggest thing that marks the difference between him and Isaac? Like, because Isaac is a step down in terms of his p- level as a prospect right now. Sure, yeah. I mean, he's he's just not the same power athlete and not the same explosive athlete that Josh Jackson is. But, you know, Jonathan Isaac is two to three inches bigger, a little bit longer. And he's probably going to be able to play the four a little bit easier. And his body isn't nearly as developed yet as Josh Jackson. Like, guys develop at different rates. This is kind of the thing that, you know, makes evaluation so difficult. Some guys don't develop until they're 22. Some guys develop at 16, like Josh Jackson did. You know, Jonathan Isaac, I think, is still getting there in terms of developing and, you know, getting to that next level athletically and with his frame. So if he became just, you know, a Paul George level athlete, it took Paul George a while too to get to the like level of athleticism that he has and is able to portray in his game. If he became Paul George, it wouldn't surprise me. If he became a, you know, six foot 11, 220 pounds, you know, string bean who can't really, you know, hold his own position ever just because his body doesn't hold weight well wouldn't be all that crazy either yeah that's it's a possibility i I struggle a little bit with where he's going to be physically and of course a lot of that depends on on just how you develop as a a, you know with a weight room in college and things like that and florida state will be Mm -hmm. a question mark with him and with tatum the parallel that i saw and you could see a different one was to a less athletic but maybe more skilled at the same age aaron gordon is that kind of what you see from him? Yeah, I mean, that that sounds right. I mean, I would say he's like a just less skilled Carmelo Anthony more than anything almost, right? Like, that's kind of what 
what Aaron Gordon is, right? Like he's a more Mello, athletic, Mello has like, such so a versatile offensive Mello. game, though. Like he could Mello, if you get him the ball in basically any offensive situation, he could do something really productive, and that's mm-hmm. not, to me another level than those guys. And Mello, even his like his, his junior year of high school, there was something there off- offensively and defensively. Yeah. Both Gordon and Tatum just have a versatility in today's NBA. I, I think defensively they could be really well suited for where the NBA is going. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Tatum's not like the longest guy necessarily. I think no. he has like a six ten, six eleven wingspan. Seems six pretty agile though. He does. Yeah, he's like he's more agile than Carmelo Anthony for sure. But then again, like you look at you look at Denver Mello, for instance, or Syracuse Mello, and that Mello was ab- like agile. I-, I look at him. The reason I say Mello is just because you know you look at what he does when he gets the ball. Uh, he's that guy who likes the ball on the you know, maybe the elbow or the mid-range or even the wing at the three-point line. And he'll take you one-on-one. He'll jab-step you. He'll take the jump shot from deep. He'll slash to the rim. Like, he has that polish that is very rare in terms of, uh, you know, 18-, 19-year-old talents that it's really just not easy to find in terms of the way that those guys are coordinated and fluid and already know what to do. Uh, he, he kind of has that going for him. Tatum's a guy I'm a little bit lower on, to be honest. Like, I, I think that he is, I think to be Carmelo Anthony, you kind of just have to be Carmelo Anthony where, you know, you're just so preternaturally gifted that it, it just automatically works out in terms of your scoring ability. I, I think Tatum's a lesser version of that, and that scares me a little bit. You know, I think he's absolutely a top 10 prospect in the draft just because of that polish, that ability to score in a variety of different ways. But I'm going to be interested interested to see how his year at Duke goes because, like you said, he's not going to play what I think is his best position at the four. He's going to play a lot of three. He's probably not going to be, like, the main offensive option there. I mean, Grayson Allen's still there, and Grayson, for whatever you think of his NBA potential, is a superstar college basketball player, and he's going to be getting the majority of the shots there. And, you know, Harry Giles is there and a variety of different options are there. Luke Kennard. So I'll be interested to see how Jason Tatum kind of integrates himself and if he can kind of assert himself as that number two option or even like the number three option behind Harry Giles. Yeah, that will definitely be worth watching. And there could be this other weird parallel to Aaron Gordon where they're playing out of position for a year because that's probably what Aaron Gordon's going to do because of how Orlando messed up their team. That it can help. It can help. Just develop that kind of a skill set, and then you take that to when yeah. you're getting defended by fours, and all of a sudden it starts working better. And you know, so you have to build that up, and then all of a sudden it, it gets a lot easier. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just still laughing at how Orlando screwed their team up because it's kind of true. It is. So, so we'll move on to the other classes, but before we do that. Since you, of course, know the depth guys more more in this group than I do, who, if it's somebody who's more of an NBA fan, are there some players that are a little bit lower that would be worth keeping an eye on? Yeah, I would watch OG Ananobi in Indiana. You know, he only averaged like five points a game last year. Took him a while to really break into that rotation. But once he did, he became just maybe the most versatile defender that you can imagine. He went from, you know, defending fours uh, early in the year to completely and utterly shutting down Jamal Murray in the NCAA tournament. So with the way his defensive ability is, I can see him, if he can continue to develop that shot, and he does look to have pretty good touch, shot reasonably well from three last year, he could be the kind of three and D prospect that could 
like genuinely morph into a starting caliber NBA three and D prospect, which is a little bit different. Uh, he's, you know, six foot eight, seven foot two wingspan. You know, he has the frame, he has the athleticism, just needs to continue to develop the skill level. I'm trying to think of some other college basketball guys that I like, maybe an Edmund Sumner from Xavier. Uh, he was at Nike Basketball Academy and looked reasonably good. Six foot five, freak athlete, really kind of hit his growth spurt. Uh, like right in between his senior year of high school and his redshirt freshman year at Xavier, he was like a six foot one, six foot like two kid or so and blossomed all the way up to like six foot five, six foot six, you know, just became a freak athlete, like 43 inch vertical leap quickness can do everything you're looking for really needs to improve the jump shot though, in order to become that next level type player. In terms of some other guys, I mean, it gets hard once you get into the, you know, older guys in this class because so many guys left with this new rule that allowed people to test the market in terms of their NBA value. I mean, a lot of the guys are people that, you know, have been around college forever, like a Monte Morris. Or like Chris Boucher, who's been in college forever. Well, Chris Boucher has been places forever. Yeah, places forever is probably better. (laughs) I don't really know how to define uh, college with him necessarily you know it gets really difficult this year it just does um like Josh Hart's gonna put up numbers this year he'll put up numbers but you know NBA guys aren't really excited about him because he can't shoot like the jump shot is problematic he shoots the ball side spin and it's just kind of a slow release like NBA teams do not buy him as a shooter just full stop and if he's not a shooter at six foot five you know short wingspan yeah he really defends and yeah he you know has a nose for the ball and everything that you're looking for in terms of superlatives you know off the floor and on the floor uh, he, i just don't know that he has the skill level to be honest and that's a problem that's certainly fair and since our mutual friends mike schmitz and nate aren't nate duncan are on this podcast hopefully this is the year that steve Halley finally breaks out i mean it might be uh, he's a Really interesting guy in terms of his skill set, and he can shoot the basketball now. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me he's about, at all. So, be, he's younger than Josh Jackson. Yeah, he's 19. He's going to be a junior that's younger than Josh Jackson, which is funny. I mean, he's got a lot of potential. I mean, there's a reason that he was called, like, Ukrainian. I don't remember who's, like, Ukrainian LeBron or whatever, but, like, he he's, like, Ukraine's premier, premier, like, basketball prospect ever. The reason for that is he's just so skilled and he's still learning basketball, 19 years old. It's it's hard to forget that like he was 17 and 18 playing college basketball. And that is so incredibly difficult. He's going to graduate college at 20 years old. And uh, like, what do you do at that stage? Like, how do you evaluate that kind of player? It's going to be difficult, I think, for NBA teams. So we'll just kind of have to see how that goes. Uh, in terms in terms of other college guys, though, I'm not super in on, you know, a lot of the bigger names. You look at a guy like a, you know, Keita Bates-Diop at Ohio State, six foot seven, long arms, can really shoot. It gets, like, kind of ugly quick this year before it turns good. Like, last year, even in the offseason before players developed, like you knew how they developed over the summer, you could see, like, a certain depth in the 2016 class that – Despite the lottery being terrible, you could see it not being a terribly bad depth class, and it ended up being a pretty good depth class because everybody left. That's hindered the depth in this class. And, like, you look at a guy like Alonzo Trier, who I think has a decent shot to go in the first round, that probably would have been, like, a you know mid-second round pick last year. Or a Dwayne Bacon, who still doesn't, like, have any 
discernible skill beyond insane athleticism and insane length and the ability to slash and get out in transition. But, you know, six, five, seven foot wingspan, crazy athlete. Let's go for it. Let's party. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's just not a whole lot of excitement in the older guys in this draft class, I would say. So I will give you the option in terms of, because we'll talk a little bit about the, the recently drafted guys because we were both at Summer League, and then a little bit about 2018 and beyond. Which way would you rather start? Let's start with 2018. Let's, okay. Let's have some fun with 2018. So 2018, I mean, there are a few just really fascinating guys, but is Zion Williamson, he's 2018, right? Or is he uh, I think he's 19. He's a, he was he looked really good, though, like for a guy. I don't, I don't know. I've tried to explain Zion to people. It's like, because he doesn't look like he's as athletic as he is, but he's really athletic. Yeah, it's like. He is like kind of the Vince Young thing going on where he covers so much ground so fast that like it doesn't look like he's moving quickly in a way. But then you look and it's just like he's there on top of it. And yeah, it's it's really strange to see him play. Okay, so it's like a different experience at six foot seven. Like he's he's just like this wing that already has like kind of a filled out frame. Like I feel like he's what, like maybe 210 pounds already? Something like that, maybe? Mm-hmm. Like, he's kind of a big dude and, like, built out. But, yeah, I think he finished second in the Elite 24 dunk contest, or maybe won it with Diallo. And just a talented, just a physically talented guy. And he, at Nations, did a really nice job of impacting the game, even though his team wasn't as good as some of the other teams that were there. Yeah, he was on the non-insane team that had, like, DeAndre Ayton and Wendell Carter and... And Trayvon Duvall. Duvall. Yeah, like Trayvon Duvall is insane. Yeah, like it's, it's, he's going to be really interesting to watch over the next couple years because he does need to improve the skill level, like all 16 to 17 year old wings do at that level. But, you know, he's definitely a guy that I'm interested to watch. Is it time to talk about Aiden? We can talk about Aiden. I mean, it's. (laughs) Me talking about DeAndre Aiden is just throwing my hands up and going, Okay, this could go anywhere from him being, like, an Anthony Davis-level prospect if he starts really caring about basketball and, like, really locking down and playing with the kind of intensity all the time that he needs to, to him, like, being a, you know, normal lottery pick. So He's one of the most (laughs) frustrating draft prospects I have, in all the years I've followed and covered this, he is maybe the most frustrating because his talent is undeniable. Like, what he can do when he's engaged is impact the game just everywhere on the floor. He can do so many different things for a guy his size. But when he doesn't care, he disappears. And a player who's legit seven foot and has his skill level should never disappear. With him, it's like if you asked a scientist to create a basketball player with the perfect size, athleticism, length, you know, coordination, dimensions, everything that you could ask for. The scientist would create DeAndre Ayton. He's seven foot tall with a seven foot six wingspan, like nine four standing reach. He can, you know, jump like a normal average wing. He's insanely coordinated. He has incredible hands. He's coordinated enough to go out and shoot like from 20 feet already at 18 years old, which is insane Uh, like i I don't like he is a jaw-dropping talent in terms of what he is capable of on the basketball floor yeah one one way of thinking about him is watch him sometimes and it's just like what are you doing 
why, why are, why aren't you dominating this guy? Like, why, why, why are you floating from, why are you floating 25 feet away from the rim? You're seven feet tall with a seven foot six wingspan. Why are you, you know, not posting this dude up that's six foot eight? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so he was at Hillcrest and they played prolific prep in that game up in Napa. And he started out the game in, in the warmups, he was just shooting threes. He wasn't doing anything else, just shooting threes. And then in the first part of the game, he was floating. Then he started engaging on the interior. He got the a guy who's going to Cal, I think, next year or two years now, like three instant fouls, and then just gave a lot of guys trouble, and then just stopped doing it, and then went back to the perimeter and just started doing that again. And it's so strange, because we're I think it's also with the big man prospects that are that gifted recently, we brought up Towns and, and Davis at various points during this. Those guys are so far from that mentality that, you know, when they have the ability to take over, they just do it. And he's so different from that. And that's part of what makes it so hard to to watch him. And it was even true, I think, a lot of the... So he was on this ridiculously stacked team at Adidas Nations. They basically put all the best guys in the class of... The, the high school class of 2017, draft class of 2018, in on mm. the same team. And it seemed like they took his mentality, where they would fall behind, they would just be lax early, and then all of a sudden they would realize, oh yeah, we have... All of the, like we have the five best players on the floor. We can beat anyone, and they still won the championship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what happens. That kind of stuff is contagious, and that that's why I think it's concerning to see a guy like him that is so very obviously like the best talent on any floor that he steps on right now. Like he could step into a college game right now, be very clearly the best talent on that floor. Like. Full stop. Guys that are 22, 23 years old, he would be more talented than they are. Yeah, like, if, if you were allowed to put him on an NBA roster, I would like him better than some backup centers in the league. And he would make me want to go insane, though. Like, that's how talented yeah. this guy is. It's so insane. Yeah, I mean, and then, it's so, really and then you weird to watch. that with, like, Wendell like, Carter, who was his teammate at Adidas Nations, who is not eight, and he's a very talented guy, and I, I actually like him a lot more now than I did before, but... If Aiden had his level of intensity, like, you'd be talking about this guy in in terms that we just don't discuss players in. Right. Like, if he had that mentality, he'd probably be a better player than Anthony Davis at that level. His talent is insane. I don't even – it just kind of saddens me to talk about him in that way, you know? Like, it's it's so frustrating to watch him just not care for 20 minutes and then – He'll care for like a six minute stretch, pull down 10 rebounds, score 12 points, and then it'll be like, okay, I'm good. You know, like it, it's just, it's frustrating. Let's talk about somebody who's less frustrating. Trevon Duval looked really good in all the stuff I've seen this summer. He could definitely so be a good college player, and he has serious potential to be an NBA guy. Yeah, I, I think that he is the best guard in that class, probably. Um, I, I don't really think that that's a, that's a hot take, right? Like it's either him or Hamadou Diallo, probably, for me. What Duval does, he's an incredible athlete. He can get into the lane whenever he wants. He is just a ridiculous ball handler uh, in terms of the way that he keeps the ball in a string, can do anything side to side, stop, start, whatever whatever you're looking for out of a point guard in, in terms of that, he can do already. Uh, where he gets a little bit crazy is the game. He thinks the game on a different level like you want point guards to, but sometimes it starts going a little bit fast and he tries to do too much. And he'll throw, like, some goofy-ass behind-the-back pass that ends up 20 feet away from his intended target and hitting a guy six feet in the stands in the face. (laughs) It's just uh, he's still trying to figure out how to harness all of his skills 
once he does that, he's going to be awesome. I'm going to be really interested to see how his senior year goes because he's at API, which is the former prime prep, which, you know, Manuel Moutier went to and Terrence Ferguson went to, uh, neither of whom played college basketball. Pretty much everyone who has gone to that high school uh, or been at that program, I guess is the best way to put it, um, has had major NCAA investigations at the very least. So I'm going to be interested to see how it ends up. Like people tell me he's going to college for sure. Um, that's great. I would love for him to go to college, and he seems like an awesome kid, and I really wish the best for him. I just don't know how to attack prime prep yet in terms of how to cover it or in terms of how to what to think about whether or not he's going to uh, end up in college. So would the other guy in this class just to keep people in on B. Diallo just because he's such a freak athletically? Yeah, I would say there are, co- there are a few. Uh, so Michael Porter is probably the most skilled scorer at this stage. Six foot nine, like six, eleven, seven foot wingspan, kind of adjacent Tatumy in that same body frame type. Really good shooter already. Really good ball handler at that size. Uh, can really score the basketball. He'll be going to Washington, and that means that Washington is going to have like four lottery picks and probably never make the NCAA tournament in a three-year stretch, which just seems impossible, but will probably happen. Muhammad Bamba has a seven foot eight wingspan at seven feet tall like 7'9 wingspan. He's like a Tyrannosaurus, like not a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like was his Velociraptor's the one with long arms? Is that right? I can't remember. Which one has long arms? My middle he's school like a is so angry right now. Yeah, he's like a dinosaur basically in the way that what he does defensively is unlike anything I've ever seen in high school basketball just because like he swallows defenders with his arms. Like there, there are balls that you think he's never going to be able to block and he blocks them, like, with his wrist. It's the funkiest thing that you have to watch to kind of get a feeling for him. He's fascinating in general because, like, he is heavily considering going to Harvard for from what everyone says. It's like Harvard, Duke, and Kentucky. And, like, Harvard is very much in the consideration, I guess, for both he and, I believe, Wendell Carter yeah. is also in that same boat. I mean, if either one of those two guys go to Harvard, God love him. <laughs> and then finally, Hamadou Diallo. Diallo is kind of underrated, I think, by scouting services a little bit in terms of his long-term potential. He's a guy that I feel like most services have him, like, in the 10 to 15 range. And, like, they have, like, Colin Sexton ahead of him and Mitchell Robinson and Brandon McCoy and, you know, guys like that. Diallo, you know, he can shoot the ball a little bit already. He is the freakiest athlete that you will see. I saw him for the first time in the summer of 2015, and I was blown away with just his leaping ability. I was sitting like maybe, you know, 12 feet away from the basket, watching next to a couple of random coaches at an AAU event, and I just went, holy, who is that? And am I allowed to say that on this podcast? Or you we'll, have to we'll figure that? it out. He went up for like a between-the-leg offhanded dunk where he jumped, he was coming in from like the side, like the corner of the corner of the court, and he jumped from like six feet outside of where the lane starts. And I didn't think anyone could get to the rim from that far away. And he did it with ease. I, I don't even know how to describe his athleticism. And Nations, he, he had, I think it was him who had one of the greatest missed dunks I've ever seen, where he 
tried yeah. to, I think he tried to dunk on Zion Williamson and almost did, but just did it from a little bit too far away. And it was incredible. And with Diallo, the combination of incredible athleticism and a really good motor, I, especially yeah. as a college player, those two things are enough. As an NBA player, you need more skill on top of that and, and a little bit, and you know, a greater versatility in your offensive game. But also, his size is, is fine. You know, like, he, he can do it from that perspective. So, Diallo yep. will be will be fascinating. The other perimeter guys that are kind of in that group that were intriguing, Troy Brown and Gary Trent, both talented yep. guys, more scorers than defenders, but could both end up being good pros. Yeah. Another underrated guy that I think recruiting services – I mean, they know who he is, obviously, but I think that they underrate him a little bit. Is Nikhil Walker or Nikhil Alexander Walker? I think is uh, the name. I think it's not Nikhil Walker Dean, Alexander, the Canadian dude. Yeah. Oh my God, I love that guy. He's a yeah. It, I'm pretty sure it's Nikhil Alexander Walker. Um, he's just so skilled as a scorer. Um, he he's going to be really, really, really good. I think uh, as a college player, and I think he will play in the NBA. I think he'll be a starter in the NBA. Like, I mean, it's not definite, of course, but his... So, Nikhil has two-guard size. He's like 6'5", 6'6", at this point. Of course, could still get taller, still pretty young. Good jump sure. shot, really nailed it a couple times, and cares defensively. So, what what's great about him is that he can defend twos, and probably once, he's agile enough that that should work, and can play on or off the ball, probably better as a secondary, but if you can defend twos, being a secondary is wonderful. So, Nikhil, all on, all on with him. I might be higher on him than almost anybody, because I watched a lot of the Canadian team there, and he was their most consistent player. He wasn't always their best. But he was he was consistent. That Canadian team was fun because they consistently outperformed expectations. The only team that they were they were really snake bit against Team Harden, which was the team with all the good guys, because they just had more talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, everything you said is stuff that I'm in the same boat on. So, so yeah, I, I think he's going to be really good. We've we've done it a little bit before, and of course in person on summer league. Who was who defied your expectations in either a positive or negative way? I mean, do we need to talk about Nick Stauskas? Oh, my God. (laughs) uh, No, I don't uh, don't think we do. But actually, I will make a very small point on this. Nate and I talked about this a little bit, is that if you are going to think about declining an option on a guy, so if you're going to decline an option on a rookie scale, you should be ready to cut that player right away just because you're pretty much dead. And that was actually a big issue I had with the Nets with... Krasov. Krasov, yeah. Because they... Declined his option, which was the right move, and then they kept him on the roster. And if you decline an option on a player, they're an unrestricted free agent, and you can't sign them for more than that. So generally speaking, unless you trade for them and it's the coach president's son, that generally isn't going to really happen very much. And from what we saw from Stauskas, they should decline his option and cut him, though there's more, of course, more sample that they can look at in terms of practices and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of how he looked in summer league, he should not be on an NBA roster. Well, it's so hard with him because, like, part of it is very clearly confidence. He just looks, like, dejected sometimes on the floor. And, like, from everything you hear about, like, the situation that he had in Sacramento, like, he clearly just had a crisis of confidence and couldn't shoot and couldn't do a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that – I guess that you can't really consider that guy an option once you decline the option, like, long term. But at the same time, I mean, you can't accept his option either because it's going to be like $4.5 million, right? Like, it's going to be a super high option. 
Yeah, he was a top Is that 10 sound player. right? Four and a half? It's about four and a half, that sounds about like right. That? You just can't have that on your cap sheet next year going into the year unless he just has like the best summer that you could ever have, basically. So no, I, I don't really see a whole see a whole lot to get excited about him. In terms of guys that surprised me, do we want to talk rookies or oh, other? Oh, door is open to you, my friend. The guy who I actually kind of liked that, you know, the Mavericks signed, and I think they gave him a guaranteed deal, is Jonathan Gibson, the yeah, scoring just, point guard. Scored. Yeah, like, and it was not like, you know, Jordan McRae scoring, where you're getting to the line 95 times a game, and that isn't translatable to the NBA. Like, he was quick, and, you know, he's knocking down shots, and getting open, and uh, you know, getting genuine separation against guys it, like six foot two or whatever he is. Yeah, I, I didn't think he was that good. I knew that he led the Chinese league in scoring the year before, but like th- that's a guy that I didn't think of as an NBA potential guy. And he very clearly uh, looked it at summer league. So I'll be interested to see him. Tyus Jones is someone I'm not super big on, but he was really good at summer league. Looked very under control, really ran the pick and roll well. I think he averaged like 20 and 7 or something like that per game. Um, won the Summer League MVP award. He is, you know, obviously in a little bit of trouble there because they have both Ricky Rubio and Chris Dunn. Like, they're not going to decline his option or anything. It's just such a cheap option that there's no real reason to do it. But he might be a guy where, like, you look at it where – it's his second team where he makes an NBA impact, not his first team. I'm trying to think, you know, oh, so, we, should so, we talk so, about so, Thon Maker? Yeah, sure. We can I mean, talk about Thon. He was, he had some moments. He also felt bad. I, thought. He, I didn't think he was bad. He had some moments that were a little bit concerning, but he, what bothered me a little bit is that when his skill level, you know, he, he certainly can put it together, but I think he needs to give maximum effort every second he's out there, you know, setting awesome screens, doing all that sort of stuff. And he was a little too floaty. Not not terrible, like not as bad as some other players, but he's going to have to be, I would rather play him fewer minutes and get them higher intensity until he really gets that. I do not think you can put him on, on an NBA floor this year. <laughs> like, what, what did he do that makes you think that, oh yeah, this is going to work in the NBA? Like he got all of his points from offensive rebounding, which I don't think he's going to be able to hold his position enough in the NBA to offensive rebound. He... Didn't shoot well. The shot's still flatter than, you know, the table that this computer is on right now. Defensively, he had no idea what he was doing. And that's to be expected for rookies. Like, I don't mean that is a unique-to-him problem. That's a rookie problem. But it's – I don't I don't see it. The way, I, I the way see, he moved I mean, on, maybe the, the, way he moved on the floor was encouraging to me. You know, like both in kind of pick-and-roll situations, he did a decent enough job. And then in yeah. transition – but again, that goes into the idea of maximum effort. You know that if he can, he's a, he's a maximum effort player. Yeah, he, he has to be. I mean, that's the only, only really the only way he can do it. And that is a challenge. When I saw him play in high school, he showed more skill. But it's also true that at the high in a high school setting, all the guys with any skill show that. You know, that's just the way it works. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. He definitely moved really well in terms of in the open floor, in terms of, you know, in half-court settings and pick-and-roll settings. He was a deterrent on the perimeter for guards that were trying to get past him just because he can move his feet reasonably well. But then he fouled them once they got, like, a half-step on him. That's true. So, I mean, that's going to be a constant problem in the NBA. I'm not writing him off, writing him off like, as a future NBA player by any means, but... 
I, I didn't think he looked like his numbers said he what he averaged like maybe fourteen and ten or fourteen and eleven or something like that. Yeah, those um, those are definitely misleading because they came in short bursts. Yeah. So two guys that you and and Mike and a couple other people were higher on, but just seeing them in person were Zubac who's on the Lakers, and Patrick McCaw, who's on the Warriors. And both those guys looked better than most early second-rounders do to me. Yeah, I mean, Zubak's a guy that I loved. I had him at, like, I think 15 on my last big board. Just has the size, the length, the way that he moves his feet. Like, it's it's really strong for a guy that's that not only that tall, but that bulky in terms of his body. I think he's going to be a probably better player over the course of – Timofey Mozgov's contract than Timofey Mozgov is. That's um, certainly possible. That's, yeah, like he's he's going to be a good player for them, I think, probably and them signing Tarek, within the first re-signing two Tarek Black after, I think, didn't they re-sign Black after Summer League? They did. I don't really have a problem with that because I think he can be a useful asset to go out and get like a second round pick again eventually. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, if they, if that's how they see him, the concern is just that when you pay a guy $6 million, or what, I think yeah. that's about what he's getting this year, that if they use him over Zubac, just because the value added of giving him a few minutes and a few reps, especially if the Lakers aren't good, which seems to be the expectation, that w- I think it would be good to do that. Of course, you can also evaluate... I'd, I'd imagine, I was going to say, I'd imagine Zubac spends a lot of time in the D-League. Yeah, that's the other way to handle it, and if they do that, that'll be fine. And McCall um, might actually play for the Warriors, not only garbage time, because the Warriors will have plenty of that, but just their swingman depth is not that strong. They're incredibly top-heavy. You know, they're, they have, the guys at the sure. top are the best in the league. But through having minimum contracts and through getting a lot of guys more in the Barbosa range where it was short-term contracts and they signed other places, if he plays well, he could get minutes right away. And I got to tell you, that's a... That, that's a Mike Schmitz guy. That's not a me guy. Right. That's why I said some guys were you and some guys were Schmitz. He yeah, no, loves, I mean, Mike, he loves Mike's, McCaw as much as you love Zubac. Yeah, my, Mike's uh, Mike's the best in the business for a reason, in my opinion. And, you know, the Patrick McCaw thing uh, is a great reason why. You know, uh, McCaw, you know, I, I liked him enough. I liked him in certain situations. If you would have told me that the Warriors were going to take him, I would have had Patrick McCaw as a top 20 prospect in the draft. You know, just because his style, the way that he defends, the way he gets into passing lanes, the way that I know that they will utilize him as both a ball handler and as a distributor uh, in a lot of ways, or they can in the future as well, makes me way more interested in him than in any other uh, situation that he could have been drafted into. That kind of goes into the idea of, you know, where big boards are, you know, kind of the most difficult thing to create because you're basically judging, like, 30 different sets of team needs into one massive amalgamation. It kind of makes them a little bit, and they're not worthless, but they're like kind of difficult to, difficult to create. But McCaw is going to be good. He's going to be a good player for them. I don't know that I'm in the same boat as you are, as him playing early necessarily. I mean, they kept Ian Clark. And I would imagine that Ian Clark can do a little bit more than he can early just because of the ability to shoot while also defending. I mean, maybe you can play in Elliott Williams if Elliott makes that team. Do you think Elliott's going to make the team? I don't know. He has a pretty good shot. Right now, he'd be the favorite, but it seems open because especially the Warriors aren't going to be a luxury tax team, so they can choose whoever of that group they like best. And Williams is the favorite right now. He also fits that kind of need. 
But if somebody really steps up, the the real question for the Warriors will be if they are willing to bite the bullet on a guaranteed contract if one or more of the non-guaranteed guys really step up. And they're never going to cut Anderson Varejao, even though that's probably the right would be the right call in terms of maximizing their team, especially with this back issue that's still going on. But so if, if we're taking that the 14 guaranteed are going to be in, then that makes yeah. it a lot harder for somebody like JaVale McGee because they have so many bigs already. And yeah, I, I don't think McGee has a shot, right? Yeah, I mean, he, the only way he has a shot is if he just totally outperforms expectations and basically knocks out one of the other big men. Because you can't have that. And, and the other way that you could help with somebody like JaVale is the idea that, you know, if Damian Jones and, and Looney both can't start the season, then mm-hmm. you, then maybe you start to dance around the idea of having an extra big man just for that period of time and then having yeah. you know, somebody like JaVale who's on a non-guaranteed contract might actually help that because then you can say, oh, well, you know, when mm-hmm. Looney's ready, we'll just cut him. So. Do you have any idea if they're going to try and, like, sign a couple of other non-guaranteed types? Haven't heard anything yet, but... Knowing the way that they do things, they'll probably fill out the roster. But those, I the guess would be that those last couple spots, you know, to get to twenty, would be less of guys that are going to have a real chance of making the team, and maybe be more possibilities for the D League. Yeah, no, I mean that that's the way that you do that, right? Yeah. Like you always go out and you get guys that are going to be D League fodder. Like for instance, the Pacers. Well, the Pacers don't even have D League team until, or no, did they get one this year? Right? I can't remember. Regardless, though, they just went out and signed. Or like, like, the, or like the Celtics are a good example of that. Yeah, the Celtics do an awesome job of that. That The, the guy who deserves a shout-out there is Dave Lewin. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the guy who's their general manager of their D-League team. Uh, he's tireless scouter in terms of uh, knowing everybody on every D-League team and every college basketball team. He's insane. And, and they do a really, really good job of understanding how to utilize those last spots on their team to get guys to the D-League getting guys that are interesting prospects to get down to the D-League. In terms of the Warriors, I mean, if I was an agent, I would be trying to call the Warriors to get my guy there. Like, if I was even, if I was one of the more interesting undrafted guys, I would have... Like, Gary Payton Jr. would have been an amazing fit with the Warriors. Yeah, he would have been. He really would have been. He's going to the Rockets, where I think he also has a really good, I think he has a good chance there, too. But, you know, that's a that's a perfect example of a guy like a, you know, like a Sheldon McClellan is going to Washington instead of Golden State. Like, to me, I would almost be more interested in Golden State, even though, like, theoretically, you know, Washington, you know, is a worse team. So maybe you think automatically you might be able to make the team. But, I mean, they, they have 12 guarantees plus Jarrell Eddy 13, but their wing situation with Kelly Oubre, Sadoransky, Eddie, Thornton, Otto Porter, you know, Bradley Beal, like, that's a loaded wing situation, a loaded backcourt, obviously, with now, like, Trey Burke being guaranteed and John Wall and uh, everyone else there. Like, it's tough to make that team, I think, as a wing. And with the Warriors, the other huge factor, if you were a young perimeter player, is that they've invested their recent draft picks in bigs, so you're not competing with guys that they've invested in. You know, some of this... Right. So, so, if you outperform Ian Clark, yeah, Ian Clark was an, a notable piece last year on the team, and, you know, he had he had some nice moments, especially mm-hmm. when Curry was out with his MCL sprain, but he isn't as ingrained in it as, let's say, Kevon Looney, who they used a first-round pick on two years ago, or even Damian Jones this year, if he can play, which we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so 
that is a very different thing when like if I were advising players is you know look at not only look at the depth at that your kind of your niche but think about the investment and that ties in with you know like something like Stauskas you know some teams would consider that of you know like let's say he was still on Sacramento of, oh he was first round pick you do something like that actually Sacramento is a good example because that two guard spot is a little bit more nebulous they have a follow they have Ben Macklemore but they just got a guy to kind of start over Macklemore so you don't know how committed they are to him so that would be a spot I'd be interested in actually what I wanted to get to with Sacramento was going to be my Macklemore go ahead by the way Macklemore would be fascinating to me on the Warriors like that that's a guy that they I think they should look at he can't dribble that's a problem but he's a talent certainly yeah but I mean Golden State has tremendous player development true I mean like I'm not saying that Ben McLemore could be like this starting caliber player for the Warriors. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Brandon Rush was awesome for the Warriors. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, he has many of the same porks in his game, we'll call them, as Ben McLemore. Okay, so on the Kings note, among the young Sacramento players, centers, so we're not going to count Boogie, ignoring contracts, who would you most want to have? Um, Probably Willie, but it's not. Yeah, probably Willie. Yeah, I, to me, Willie Scal is really close. I will say this, like, around the NBA, Willie's value is not, not like what it would be for a normal number six overall pick, you know? It's not. It's just not. He he's... hasn't improved by as much as, as you think. And also, he came into the league a little bit older because he went three years to Kentucky. Is that right? Correct. So I, I love his defensive potential still. The fact that he could be able to switch competently eventually is, is good. But his offensive game is so limited, and he doesn't play. We talked about it with Thon Maker of that maximum effort. The best role for Kali Stein at this point, just to make sure that he's on, is you know 15 to 20 minutes and just making sure that you're a killer every second you're out there. And Yeah. That is, you know, that, there's a lot of value in that. But if you bring less energy than than that level, you need to have more skill than he has right now. Well, yeah, but Scal's best role right now is getting hugs from his teammates. Yeah, I mean, Scal's raw, <laughs> but Scal's no, I know what you mean. I, like, I'm I'm half joking. But yeah. Like, it's he's he's still so far away. He is so um, far away, and 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 Papianus is. Ugh. I remember yeah, I mean, I, just just how started. just how the Warriors just how the Warriors are light years ahead. Papianis is light years away. You and I talked <laughs> about uh, so we recorded on draft night, and I remember you just lambasting that pick. And the, the, when I saw him, it all made sense because he's talented. Like there, there there is a a reason why somebody could be enamored with him just because you know he moves reasonably well for somebody his size. He there is no reason for someone to be enamored with him in the lottery. That's the that's the point I was going to make. Is like it, there is a reason to be intrigued, yeah. but there's not a reason to be like in love with him at that level, especially considering. So, right now, knowing what we know now, and of course, there's a lot of time for this to change and make us look stupid. Like in summer league, Peter Cornelly, who is not old, like I mean, I think he's older than Papi Giannis, but he's not old. Looked substantially. He better. is. He's two years older. Okay, so that's yeah. a meaningful difference. But like. Cornelly, you know, and of course Cornelly wasn't going to go in the first round anyway, even though, because there aren't enough GMs that love French centers as much as I do, thankfully. And so, well, I mean, the problem with Cornelly was he had a chance, but he did really poorly in his Eurocamp workout, mm -hmm. apparently. And he, he's, you know, there are a lot of concerns about his frame filling out enough to where he'll actually be able to play four or five in the NBA. Sure, but the skill set's interesting. Yeah, like he's, it is. And he looked good. He's, I mean, all the Nuggets guys look good. Yeah, I it's mean, sort of disgusting great, how it's a like, great system there. Hernan Gomez looked really good to me. Just all their guys, you know, that they they had that, and and to see Wancho come over this early is exciting as well. And there are different opinions on 
you know, let's say he's not actually going to be on their roster, right? Yeah, he is. Like he didn't hear anything. He, he did. He's over. He's going to be on rookie scale this year. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, and they cleared they cleared a spot by trading Joffrey Laverne, so that that's probably that's right. of it as well. Which yeah. was also fascinating because you know we'll see how those picks turn out. They could be all right, more like two fringy two fringy mid seconds. But yeah, I mean Denver has a lot of those more high upside players, and why I think that's a good lead in just in terms of one way of thinking about it that you and I talk about a lot on various avenues is just the idea of surplus value. So Joffrey Laverne, talented player, even though his his role in the defensive collapse of France was certainly notable for the limited time he was on the floor in the Olympics, but he is one year away from being in all likelihood properly paid. And so right. the surplus value, especially in some ways for a team like Oklahoma City, who has plenty of quality interior talent, is not really there. And so the way that you're hoping that he brings value, I mean, first of all, he's a capable player, which is nice to have. And, you know, having a, a fifth big man, which is probably what he is, maybe a fourth guy who can actually play basketball is good. But He's a fourth big, yeah. That's yeah, what I think he is. and so that that's there. The other thing that you're rolling the dice on is that he'll be kind of taken below market because he is, you know, not a high-end player. You know, if we're talking about him as a fourth big man at this point, and the restricted market can be really rough on those types of players. But that is a really strange bet to make. I'm sorry, what what do you what is the bet that you're making? Well there? to give like up, to give up two to give up two second round picks. Basically the idea of even though the, it's not about the assets necessarily, it's just the idea that he could be underpaid on his next contract, but it's only one year away. And so the odds that you're really getting something from him if in Oklahoma City's situation seem pretty low. Yeah, no, that that trade didn't make sense for me at all for Oklahoma City. If you look at Laverne's numbers, they're interesting in that, you know, like the counting numbers are fine. But if you look at all the underlying stuff, like the Nuggets were worse at basically every avenue of basketball with him on the floor last year. And, like, I mean, substantially worse. And you really hope that that doesn't last in terms of a player's value. I don't know what Oklahoma City does with him, I guess. Who, who do you play him with on Oklahoma City? And, like, why wouldn't you just place a bonus over him? You have Cantor. You have Ilyasova. You have... Steven Adams. You know, Steven Adams, obviously. Sabonis, obviously. You have Mitch McGarry and Nick Collison. Like, I, I would almost venture that they kind of consider McGarry like a sunk cost at this stage. Yeah, like, that's certainly that, a possibility. Like, it, I don't, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, that's a weird, it's a really weird, that's a weird team dynamic to me. Like, maybe, they, maybe they're planning on trading Ilya Silva at some point in the next six months. Well, and people had and, speculated they were going to trade Canner, but that never made sense. I mean, they, first of all, they, they like him and they just paid him a ton of money, but his he's, value. He's good. Was, yeah, it's, it's just, a, it's a strange spot, especially to be betting on bigs when Russell Westbrook is a good penetrator and the more kind of size you have that isn't great shooting, the more it hurts his ability to drive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like they're betting on guys that they think they can develop to shoot as opposed to guys that can shoot, you know, like Cantor has kind of made that leap to being like a solid corner three point shooter. Yeah. He just Um, can't defend. Right. Sabonis has potential to shoot. Laverne can kind of shoot a little bit. Like it's not, a disaster if he's taking jump shots. You know, Ilyasov is obviously a tremendous jump shooter. Steven Adams will be his pick and roll partner, obviously. So like it's a weird dynamic where it feels like they're developing guys to take the next step forward with Russ instead of going all in with this Hall of Fame talent. 
there also another issue with it is they're guys that don't have particularly high ceilings. Like some of them have higher floors. Yeah, Adams yeah. to me is the only guy that really has a high ceiling, and he's totally different from the other ones. He's the anomaly, and that gives you some flexibility in terms of everything else. But Oladipo, though, they bet on Oladipo. I think he could like become like a twenty point a game scorer. Yeah, I mean, but he's not going to have the ball in his hands that much if they have Russ. Yeah, that's right. And Oladipo is another surplus value player because what you gained with him is you have match rights and a lower cap hold, but it's going to be hard for them to use that cap space unless they're willing to pay the luxury tax because Steven Adams is going to get a huge raise off his cap hold, and he's, you know, a piece of that core. And the Russ situation is, is terrifying because while, you know, the hope is that he'll be there forever, of course, just like you, just like with any talented player, if he isn't, then you're going to probably trade him. I mean, you can't let him walk in free agency like Durant. Yeah. And so anything you're doing that constricts what you can receive in that kind of trade is, is hard because then that's either a player that you're going to have to move yourself or that it's just somebody that's off the table. And so committing to somebody like Oladipo, which it looks like they have, you know, because you don't trade for you don't trade for somebody like that, even though they got way too much value back for Ibaka. You don't trade for somebody like that without the intention of keeping them. It's like, okay, so then that changes what you're looking for if you have to trade Russ, or you're just going to put yourself in a situation where your talent is mismatched, and that's kind of where Orlando is now, where they have guys that are good basketball players, but they just don't make any sense together. Yeah, and like the other thing is with Oklahoma City, like all they did with this Russell Westbrook extension was push back the inevitable year. Sure. And the inevitable inevitable to me isn't trading him. Like it's not like moving him along. The inevitable to me is okay, next summer we have these lower cap holds. We have to make that call. Like if we don't get another guy in here, like if they don't get another guy, I think they have to trade Russ next summer. Absolutely. You know, like if they're not able to lure like a Blake Griffin back to Oklahoma, which I think is kind of crazy, but whatever, they're probably going to go for it. And he's um, too if they're old not for able them to, anyway, you know, like getting Blake. Blake is a piece to put you over the top. He wouldn't put them over the top. Is but Blake's on the same timeline as Russ, though. Yeah. I think that at that that's, stage, that's if you true. get Blake, if you get Blake, you're building around Russ and Blake, and then moving guys like Oladipo and you know Sabonis and people in speeding up that timeline to theirs, mm-hmm. right? So I get it. I think that buying time is never a bad thing, but it's almost like they just delayed the inevitable where they have to make this decision. And, I mean, maybe – I mean, it created value certainly for Oklahoma City, no doubt. Like you get maybe an extra year on Russ's deal in a trade because you get the option year which he will never accept, but, you know, maybe you can sell it as him accepting it. It's a hard situation that they're in. I think that they're probably in the most difficult situation in the league in terms of how hard the job is to be a general manager for them. I have them them second. Yeah, it's kind of easy to be like a rebuilding team, and and none of this is quote-unquote easy necessarily, but, like, on the scale, it's – on the easier side to be a losing team that is just tanking and a winning team to where you're just contending and trying to, you know, fill in pieces around. Oklahoma City is on the opposite of that scale. They are 
who is your hardest team right now? The Clippers, because they have all these really complicated situations that they have to figure out at the same time. And the difference with them, as opposed to Oklahoma City, where they have match rights on everyone, but Russ, who is under, you know, they have a year more of him under contract after this year, is the players are also the moving parts. You know, if Chris Paul is disappointed in where they're going, he can leave and you get nothing. Like so, And then maybe Chris Paul leaving affects Blake Griffin. You know, you have all these pieces that are interconnected. And the sleeper aspect of this also is that DeAndre Jordan is only two seasons away from free agency again. So the kind of the worst case scenarios for the Clippers are a lot scarier than some people give them credit for. And in some ways, depending on how you see, we talked about early in the podcast about the idea of aging point guards, how you see their future, giving both Chris Paul and I would say in some ways even more Blake Griffin, five-year full max contracts is a terrifying proposition. Well, it's a good thing they have an expert general manager like Doc Rivers around. Yeah. Great. It, I mean, it's it's such a challenge, and it is. They genuinely need to like if these guys leave, they genuinely need to hire someone. I think. Well, if, if they leave, I think they're going to be hiring a new team president and a new new coach. Like I'm guessing, Doc Doc's not going to want to sit through another through a rebuild. I mean, he's done that before. Yeah. He did it. In, I believe he did it in Orlando. I don't think he enjoyed and it. in Boston. And in Boston, yeah, and he didn't like it in Boston either. And so, and you know, he's he's done enough. The only regret there would be that he didn't give his son a longer contract. But the the Clippers, but at the same time, you know, there that is a, a reasonable possibility is that kind of the wheels fall off the train. Though I think there's a very good case that they're going to be the second best team in the West. Though there are a couple of teams that you can make that argument, but. There's it would also, be my pick for that, for what it's worth. Yeah, it, they're, they're a serious contender for it. But the if the wheels fall off possibility is there. But then also, like, the best-case scenario leads to this really weird future where you have commit, you're really committed to this t- team that's running headlong into their mid-30s and will every year will be worse than the year before. And, you know, unless they are super amazing this year, they're probably not going to make the NBA Finals. They have a reasonable good shot at making the Western Conference Finals. And if that's how Balmer defines success, sure, by all means. But so that's why they're so hard is because they not only have all these complicated decisions, but those decisions don't rely entirely on them. You know, like Oklahoma City's situation is tough in that way, but at least they have control. The Clippers don't really necessarily have that even. Yeah. Uh, is there anything the Clippers, else? You want? The Clippers have been, I just want to bring up real quick, the Clippers have been so mismanaged recently that they had to trade their first round pick from two years ago, CJ Wilcox, just to be able to tender their second round pick, David Michonneau, a contract this year. Because you have to tender him to keep his rights. Uh, he's not actually going to be coming over. He declines the tender, obviously, and they keep his rights. But like, they were so close to their hard cap that they had to trade their former first-round pick, who's not very good, keep in mind, C.J. Wilcox. But, like, it's just a microcosm of how you need a cap guy around who also acts as your general decision-maker as well. It's, or or who, who gets listened to it's enough. Real like, bad. We saw, I want to give Sacramento credit, that they structured some of their contracts this year much more intelligently yeah. than in prior years with Aflalo and with, Aaron, with Anthony Tolliver because mm-hmm. – they, you know, have light guarantees on the second year, and it's proactive, and so they have some versatility. It's more like what Boston has done. And that, so I think just having Kent Cantnell in the room really helped them out. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. It, with the Clippers, though, it's not, not so much on that. <laughs> not so much. Anything it's, else you want to discuss? Uh, um, no, I think that's about it. I'm uh, just, yeah. uh, just living the dream out here in Los Angeles. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for coming on, and hope to talk to you soon. Yeah. 
Thanks again to Sam Vicini for taking the time. You can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vicini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. And he is a writer for hire at the moment, so you should definitely hire him if you have that capacity. He's incredibly talented, and I love talking with him. It's an absolute pleasure. And it is good to talk a little bit about these upcoming draft guys, because for people like me, they start to get lost in the shuffle pretty soon as the NBA really starts to kick up. So it was great to have that conversation now, and you know, hopefully it can be a resource for people for the next couple of months until things start to change when the college season really gets underway. So at Real GM Radio, will continue on. I'm going to keep, of course, doing the division stuff that will run through the start of the season. I don't know exactly which ones are going to be when, but already starting to line up guests for the final three, which is so much fun. I really love doing those and, of course, have a couple other podcasts coming up along the way. And actually, this is going to be released late on Sunday. I will be recording the next podcast on Tuesday, but I might hold that till Wednesday just depending on what it is. So enjoy this while it comes and there will be another one quickly down the pike and that's the way it'll go sometimes you know people have asked me about putting this on a specific day and the challenge with that is that sometimes availability just isn't there or sometimes my availability isn't there and that will especially be true in the future and one exciting announcement for me is that I will be starting the Locked on Warriors podcast and so that will be a week daily Warriors podcast some days will be just me by myself, other days it will be with guests. Going to go through a lot of different formats, and it should be a lot of fun to, to talk about this team. And it will be, of course, shorter than this. I'm not going to drop an hour and 45 every single day. It'll be more in the you know 20 to 45 minute range. So hopefully a morning commute for those of you who are into that, and afternoon for others, or whatever you want to do. So that will be starting within this week. The specific timing is not yet out, and it'll probably take a little bit to get on iTunes, but it will, of course, be there eventually, and I'm thrilled to be a part of the Locked On podcast network for that. And I also want to say that I'm thrilled with Real Jam Radio, that it is in the CLNS radio network, and it's been a great experience to be with them, and it's a wonderful organization, and I was able to do Celtic Stuff Live, which is another CLNS radio podcast, which was a kind of a companion to the piece I wrote about my pathway as a sports writer so you can listen to that on the clns radio app just like you can listen to this podcast on it as well also of course want to thank blue apron they are a great sponsor and i've really loved having their product and i think you'll love it too you go to blueapron.com slash real gm get three meals for free plus free shipping and another stuff i will the sporting news is going strong i wrote a piece on chris bosh and looks more positive like he will be coming back but i wrote a piece about how it would happen if they ended up having to use the uh, the injury exclusion on him. And so that is at the Sporting News, and I have a, a big series of pieces that are coming there as soon as I finish a couple of little cogs in the whole machine. have a lot of work that is coming out soon. CBA Encyclopedia is going to be coming back strong as well in the very near future. I took a couple weeks on lighter load, and now it's really going to start going again. So thank you so much to everyone who listens. Feedback, as always, you can send it to Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y, L-E-R-O-U-X, or Danny LaRue, MBA at gmail.com. First one was Twitter handle, Danny LaRue, gmail.com is obviously an email address. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can, but the promise is to read it, so I do that. And I really do take everything into account. I really do appreciate it. So the other thing you can do with this podcast or anything else is download every episode, ideally rate and review it. really does help. And word of mouth is important as well, and word of mouth both through physical word of mouth and through the internet, of course, all those things. If you have like-minded people who you think would enjoy this podcast or any others, it really does help because 
there are people who we can't reach, and that is always just the nature of the business. So if you can do that, it is much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything.